Right. You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So we've been coming through this letter together the last several weeks. And now we find ourselves in verse 15, and we're going to make it to verse 15, through verse 15 and 16 today. So Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. Let me pray for us. Let's go to the Lord together. So please enter into prayer to God with me before we go to His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this chance now to open up Your Word. Father, I pray for this church, Lord. I pray, God, that You will make us a people full of Your Spirit, God, and worship to Your Holy Name. Lord Jesus, you have exposed yourself to us in your word. Help us to see. Just like we sang a moment ago, show us Christ. God, help us to get past just the intellects, the, the intellect and the, the facts that are there, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would see glory. That like you call light to shine out of darkness, that you would shine in our hearts even now. And let us see the glories of Christ, the beauty, the majesty. And Lord, I pray that even past this time, Lord, this time in your word together, in our daily lives, Lord, as we open your word day in and day out, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to your glory. God, let these truths settle in our hearts and impact us, God, and move us and empower us, Lord, for our whole lives to the day that we die. And God, I praise you for that day coming when this won't even be a battle, it won't even be a fight, Lord, but we'll see you face to face. We'll know you as we are known. We'll worship you, God, as the Lamb who was slain, who's redeemed us by your blood. But I pray that you would impact our whole lives, God, that you'd make us a church full of worship to you, filled with worship and praise. God, thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for making us brothers and sisters and family, Lord, together. God, I pray for us that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, God. That you would fill us, Lord, with the knowledge of you. But I pray that the knowledge of you would move us to walk in a manner worthy of you, God. Let us be fully pleasing to you, God. Let us be fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of you. God, I pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for endurance, for long-suffering with joy. And Lord, I pray that we live lives giving thanks to your holy name. You've qualified us, God. You've qualified us for the inheritance that is to come. Thank you, Lord. You've delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Thank you, Lord. You've given us redemption. You've given us forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving even now as we read your word together. Lord, let this be another expression of our worship to you. God, help us not to just gather together in vain right now. But to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Colossians chapter 1. Let me ask you a question. Uh, what do you think 
is the most important question that's ever been asked in all of human history. Nobody has an answer? The most important question that's ever been asked in all of human history. And I want you to think about Jesus at the pinnacle of his gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the pinnacle of these accounts. You see him, look at his disciples. And he says, who do you say that I am? This is a massive question. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a matter of life and death. The way you answer this question is a matter of life or death. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this section of scripture that we're in and entering into deeper is one of the thickest, most glorious sections that answers that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It may be said that the most important thing about you and me is what comes into our minds when we think about God. That's from A.W. Tozer. And let me be a little more specific. It may be that, that the most important thing about you is what enters into your mind and your heart when you think about Christ. Who is He to you? What's He like? What's His, what's his attributes? And my prayers that as we get into this, this uh, you know, prominent paragraph in Colossians as we go here we begin here and we continue here for several weeks is that our minds would be transformed that we might see the glories of Christ that we move past it praise the living God that he has taught us things about himself already and we're saying God show us more open the eyes of our heart not just the intellect not just our physical eyes but open the eyes of our heart that we might truly see who you are today and over the next several weeks. And so I want to read not just a section that we're going to be digging into. I want to read the whole paragraph or the whole section uh, or, or larger section that's around verses 15 and 16. I want to read verses 14 all the way to verse 20. This is an explosive description of Jesus right here. An explosive description of Jesus. I want you to think about Paul. You remember he would... Remember how Paul, you know, as we read this, remember how Paul would, would dictate his letters, right? So he would be speaking and somebody's writing his letter out for him. And a lot of times at the very end, he would write it in his own hand. So I want you to picture Paul dictating out this letter here. He's speaking these things. And at this point, he gets to this point where he says, God, who has qualified us, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He is, he is, he is. And he goes through. Who he is. I want you to see Paul hitting his knees in this moment, lifting his hands to heaven, to the heavens, and just crying out to God in worship as he says these things. Because I think that's what it's supposed to lead us to do. So I want you to think about that as we read it. Look at verse 14. In whom, we're speaking about Jesus here. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Making peace by the blood of His cross. So here you have this explosive description of Jesus. And before we dig in to verse 15 and 16, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. Let's think about this question together. Why would Paul, at this point in his letter, at this point in the letter, why would Paul begin to go into this detailed description of Jesus? So let's answer this question. Why would Paul begin to move into this detailed description of Jesus? And I want to give you two reasons. And one of them is going to be gazing back in the verses that come before this description of Jesus. And the second reason will be gazing forward into the, the scripture, Colossians chapter 2, at, at what comes after this description of Jesus. So why would Paul go into such detail of description of Jesus right here? Reason number one is this, is that in the verses prior to this description of Jesus, verses 9 through 12, what we see is that the Christian life is marked by a life of worship to the living God with all of our affections to Him. That the reason we exist is to worship God, to glorify God with our affections toward Him. So let me get you to see that connection very quickly. The connection in verse 12 at the end of Paul's prayer, this prayer of sanctification in a sense. At the end of that prayer, he says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. At the end of verse 11, with joy, you got those affections there. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. So I want you to see this idea of we exist to glorify God. We are created to give thanks to God. And then he begins to give this description of who he is. Giving thanks to the Father who is what? Who has qualified us. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, He's still describing. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. I want you to think about those connections. We exist to give Him thanks. And hey, here's this description of Jesus. The reason for which you would give Him praise. The reason for which you would glorify His holy name. Here's this description of Jesus. The reason that your affection should be overflowing with who He is. Does that make sense to you? I want you to think about this from a larger scale. Why do we exist? Why do we have breath in our lungs? Why has God created us? What is the reason for our existence? What is our ultimate purpose? Do you know what it is? Anybody to glorify God, to, to exalt God. We exist for the exaltation of the almighty. We exist to magnify his magnificence. This is this is the reason that we exist. A few verses on that. Isaiah 43, verse seven. Isaiah 43, verse seven says everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. Isaiah 43, verse 21. The people whom I form for myself, they shall declare my praise. What do you mean you create us for your glory? What do you mean you create us for yourself? They shall declare my praise. You exist. You have breath in your lungs that you might exalt the King of glory. Truth from God's word. And once you see that truth in the scriptures, and many of you have experienced this, once you see that truth in the scriptures, next thing you know, you start running into it everywhere in the Bible, right? 
start reading. I was just reading this week uh, the, the, in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues that are there. It brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. God could have wiped them out in a moment. But why does God do it that way with those plagues? And over and over again, he says that they might know that I'm God. That they might know that I'm God. When he parted the Red Sea, he says, I'm doing it. That they might know that I'm God. This, everything that he does and the reason that we exist is for his glory. So I want you to think about this. What role do your affections play? Your joy in Christ, your satisfaction in Christ, your worship towards Him. What role do your affections play in your ability to glorify God? So in Colossians 1, 11 and 12, we see with joy. It ends with with joy. God, give us power to live out this Christian life with joy. Giving thanks to God the Father. So the affections directly affect the degree to which we can glorify our God. Okay, this is what we meant when we kept when we keep talking about being happy in Jesus, right? What we mean by being happy in Jesus is being satisfied in Christ. Or as the psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord. This is joy in your God. See these the, God is most glorified in your life when these affections are in place. Think about the obedience of my children to me. Think about that. When does my child's obedience honor me as his father? When does it happen? Does it happen when I say, son, go clean your room? And he ducks his head and he doesn't want to do it, but he walks and goes and, and does it. Does that honor his father? No. But what does? When I say, son, go clean your room. And he knows that his daddy loves him. And he knows that his daddy sees what's best for him. And out of joy in his heart, yes, sir, dad. And he runs in there and he does it with joy. That honors his father. And in the same way, our affections towards God. God is most glorified in us when these affections, when these affections are in, in place. And so what we do is we fight for those affections to be overflowing in our hearts towards Christ so that we're doing what we exist for. Glorify His holy name. Everybody with me on that? And so I want you to think about this. How then do you get yourself into that place? How do you get your affections into that place of glorifying God? Do you just look in at yourself and you, you know, like Dustin was saying, he said something similar last week. You look in and you say, just glorify. Just be happy in Him. What's wrong with you, soul? Just glorify God. Is that what you do? And in a sense, you can, right? Like, like think about Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, it says, he's looking at himself saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. With all that is in me, bless his holy name. Soul, bless the Lord. But then he comes off the backside of that. And here's what he does. And forget not all his benefits. And he begins to drive his mind into the benefits that are found in God. And upon remembering those benefits, his soul responds. And he begins to worship God with joy. And it's the same thing that's being laid out for us right here in Colossians chapter 1. We see in verses 9 through 12 that the Christian life is lived out to the glory of God with all of our affections poured out toward Him. And so Paul takes a moment to give this description of Jesus. Look at Him. Let me just put Jesus before your eyes that you might see Him and you might bow down and worship and praise to His holy name. That's the reason for this description is given right here. That we might worship Him with the highest of affections. Reason number two. Why is this description of Jesus given for us right here? Reason number two. We gaze for 
and we look into, for example, in Colossians chapter 2. And as we gaze forward in this letter, what we see is that there, there are various deceptions and schemes of the evil one to get this Colossian church off track. There's all kinds of false teaching and false ideas that are seeping into this local church to get them off track. So what Paul is doing when he gives this description of Jesus is he is laying up a foundation that will annihilate all those things that rise up against Christ. He's laying a foundation by describing Jesus that will come against the false teachings, that will come against the false ideas that can subvert their faith. So Paul's looking forward right here. I want you to imagine it like this. Imagine an army, an army, an army of people going out to war and they have various enemies all around. Just like in Colossians 2, the, the false teachings weren't just coming from one place. They were coming from all kind of different ideas. So imagine an army moving in and they've got enemies from everywhere with all kinds of different weapons coming at them. And what if there was one kind of defense that could go up and extinguish all of the acts of the enemy? What if there was something like that? And that's what we see happening here, that this description of Jesus that I just read to you, it's like a bore. It's like a defensive wall going up to protect these Christians and us as well from all that the enemy can throw against us. Everything that he can put against us to subvert us from the faith. So, so think about it. False understandings of Jesus and who he is is seeping into the Colossian church. And by the way, it's seeping into our church too. Do you know that? It's not that the enemy's not at work. He's at work here. And so you got these false teachings, these false ideas about Jesus seeping in to the local church. And he lays up Christ. This is who Christ Jesus is in this description from the very beginning. Before he begins to deal with each one of these false teachings, before he goes that direction, first, what does he do? The first thing he do, does is he lays up Christ and everything that he is. And then you also have false ideas about sanctification and they minimize Jesus. It's a Christless sanctification. And so you see Paul put Jesus before them as the bulwark, the defensive wall that defends us from all false things. <clears throat> this is the gospel for the believer that you've heard us say that many times throughout Colossians. This is the gospel for the believer. This is the, uh, some people call it Christ-centeredness or gospel-centeredness. That's what this is. This is that the gospel is not just, uh, the, the glories of Jesus and the gospel, it's not just the entrance, entrance exam to get into the university. It's the building in which all the classes take place. It's Christ to the believers. And obviously this is not a new thing. And what I mean by that is me and Dustin didn't make this up. The Gospel Coalition didn't make this up. This is in the Bibles, in the Scriptures. And I'll tell you something that stirred my heart to this even this week. I was reading a co commentary from John Calvin on Colossians. And he says these exact same things. He says, he says that, that, that right here Paul enter, enters into a delineation of Christ. A, a, a description. He enters into a description of Christ right here. To fortify these Christians against everything that the enemy brings up. And so this is the gospel for the believer. So what we're supposed to do. And what we're about to do in just a moment. We're going to dig into just verse 15 and 16 together, which gives us three descriptions of Jesus. And as we look at these verses, let it stir up your soul. Let it stir you to worship the living God. And let it protect you as a fortifying wall against all that the enemy can bring up. 
Verse 15 and 16. Let's just read these three verses. I mean, these two verses again. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So who is the who is being described right here, okay? I think you already know the answer to that, but I want to make sure you see it clearly. Verse 15 says, He. Who is the He right there? Who is it? Well, back up with me to verse 12. Let's think about this again. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. So we're talking about God the Father. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. He, that He is the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Imagine that God the Father delivering us from Satan's realm. And transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now we're talking about God the Son. God the Father transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, the beloved Son. In whom? So in the beloved Son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. He. That He in verse 15 is Jesus, the beloved Son. In whose, in whose kingdom that we dwell. Who gave us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The Son Christ Jesus is who we're talking about when we get to this He. He is the image of the invisible God. And so, in this scripture, according to verses 15 and 16, Jesus is what? Jesus is God manifested. Jesus is number two, the sovereign owner over all creation. And Jesus is number three, the creator of all things. And here's where I'm getting that from. Okay? When it says, first thing, number one, He's the image of the, of the invisible God. This means He is God manifested. We'll talk about that more in a minute. When it says, number two, He's the firstborn over all creation. We're talking about He's the sovereign owner of all creation, all created things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And number three, if you read verse 16, He is the creator. By Him and through Him and for Him, all things were created. And so we're going to dig into those three descriptions of Jesus. But, but before we do that, I want you to just think about this. Think about who's being described right there. The one being described is the man Christ Jesus. Listen to me. The, the scripture says the man Christ Jesus. Who's being described here is a man. This man fully and really man. With, he has lungs. He had Lungs and needed oxygen to fill his lungs. He had a beating heart and blood flowing through his veins. He had skin that could be pierced and bones that could be broken. Think about it. He had real emotions. Do you realize Jesus cried? He wept for people. He's truly human. He has his human senses are all in place so that he feels pain and that he feels pleasure. And according to verse 14, he bought our redemption. He bought our forgiveness. How did he do it? He's 
suffered. He experienced that pain upon a cross where his human blood was spilled to the ground, where he fought to get oxygen in his lungs, breath after breath after breath until he suffocated upon the cross. Think about it. He, he, he is fully human. And the one that they know is human, the one that Paul knows is, as human, he describes him as God manifested, Lord of all the creation and the creator God. That's amazing. That is amazing to think about this man, fully God, fully God, and yet fully man, really, really and truly man. Let's go to this. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. First description. Think about it. This means, you see, the invisible God. God is invisible, but He's made known in Christ Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible, but He's put on display in Christ Jesus. He is God manifested. God revealed in the flesh for our eyes to see. This word here, image, he is the image of the invisible God. This word image is kind of like the word uh, picture. Okay, He is the picture of the invisible God. Je this means Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Jesus is the perfect manifestation, revelation of God. So the idea is, hey, you want to know who God is? You want to know him? Look to Jesus. You want to know about God? You know what? You want to know what he's like? Get a glimpse of Jesus Christ because He is the image of the one whom we cannot see. Jesus is not created in the image of God as mankind in Genesis 1.27, but He is the image of God, the perfect representation, manifestation of God. Now, why is Jesus the perfect image of God? Why would the man Christ Jesus be the perfect image of God? And somebody shout, because he is God. Because he is God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. Just think about this with me for a minute. Let your mind go there and glorify Jesus. God is Trinity, right? If you study the scriptures deeply over who is God, you find out God is Trinity. He is three persons and yet one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not the same in person, but they're not three gods. They're three, three persons, yet one God. Think about that. And then the second person of the Trinity, namely the beloved Son, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is fully God. He takes flesh, human nature, onto His divine nature. And He becomes fully God and fully human in the incarnation of Jesus. So Jesus is the eternal Son who has taken on flesh and bones. He's the eternal Son of God. Second person of the Trinity who has taken on flesh and bones. And so, of course, He is the image. He is the image of the invisible God. Because He's God. Look at verse 19. Colossians 1.19. You don't get much clearer than this. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not a half God, half man. He is fully God. Even more clear than that. 2.9. Chapter 2 verse 9. For in Him, that's in Jesus, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I am the Father of one. In John 14, His disciples said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you not seen me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Have you seen the Father? Look to Christ. This is how you know who He is. And so for us, think about it. For us to know God, what's He like? Who is He? We've got one place to look. And to look anywhere else is dangerous and wrong. We've got one place to look. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ to know God. So He walked among us and the invisible God is made known in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let me give you some other scriptures that will help with this. Hebrews chapter 1. We have a parallel description here, very similar to Colossians. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the, the, the description of the one whose blood was spilled to the ground. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You realize it? Because the eternal Son came to the earth and took on a body. He has spoken to us by His Son. Who is He? Whom He's appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Think about this description of Christ. Let me take a couple phrases out of it. First phrase. It says He is the exact imprint of His nature. You see, Jesus is not like God in small degrees as Christians are, right? We as Christians are being conformed into the image of Christ. We're being conformed into the image of God. So we're there at very small degrees. Jesus isn't like that. This says He is the exact imprint of His nature. Because, why? Because He is God in the flesh. The other, ver the other little phrase, it says, The radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Makes me think about the sun, the sun in the sky, shining down light and heat to this earth. Now, this is a faint picture, but we lift up our eyes and, and we don't really lift up our eyes to even see the sun. But here's what we don't see. We do not see that hot, massive, fiery ball, 93 million miles away. But we feel the heat coming to the earth. We see the brightness, the radiance of the brightness of the sun Coming to the earth. And so again, a faint picture, but this is that picture of God who is invisible. And yet Jesus is that heat and that light that has come to the earth. We can't see God. He's invisible, but he's made known in Christ Jesus, our Savior. He's the image of the invisible God. Go to John chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John chapter 1. Is this the one in whom you trust? Is this the one that you believe has died for you? The one that you'll see his face one day? Still a man, fully man, fully God. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That'll fry your brain, right? He was with God and He was God. The three persons, one God is the reason why it says that. Verse 2. He... Now, we know the Word is Jesus. We'll find that out in verse 14. But before we go there, it says, He, so that we know that the Word of God, who is God, is a He. And He 
was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him. Through Jesus Christ, the Word that became flesh, all things were made through Him. He's not, he's not created being Himself. All things were made through Him. And in case you doubt that, it says, And without Him was not anything made that was made. Was it made? Well, it wasn't made without Him. Because He's the Creator of all things. Go down to verse 14. And the Word, who was God, who created all things, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, made known in Christ who came in the flesh. And this is the main verse I want to share with you. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Why? He's the invisible one. He's the invisible one. No one has ever seen God. And listen to this phrase. It'll blow your mind. The only God who is at the Father's side. What? The Word is at the Father's side. The Word is God. The Father is God. The only God who is at the Father's side. What is going on here? The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. You see that? He is the image of the invisible God. This is how we know who God is. We run to Christ. We look to Christ. We gaze at Christ all over His Word. And we know what God is like. And so here's how, that, here's how this should land on you. is beautiful. One, it's a beautiful thing. A very beautiful thing. That God has not left Himself in, a, in this, this, this fog of, of you can't know Him. Okay? He hasn't done that. He's made Himself known to us. But here's something even more beautiful. That the one to whom we look that tells us who God is, is Jesus. Do you know, do you know about Christ? Have you read those Gospels? Have you read about those prophecies about Him? Have you read about Him in, in the book of Revelation? Have you read those things? And everything that you see that's glorious and beautiful and you love, that's who God is. That's what He's like. Think, just think about that for a minute. You remember Mark 10, the story with, with uh, blind Bartimaeus? And here's this blind man. And he's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And nobody likes this man. Everybody hates Bartimaeus. Everybody tells him, Bartimaeus, shut up. You know what Jesus says? In the midst of all the crowds around him, he stops and he says, tell that man to come to me. That's what my God's like. That's what he's like. He's, he's like the one where, where the disciples are saying, stop bringing those kids to Jesus. Don't bring those kids to Jesus. Jesus rebukes them and says, you let those little children come to me. And he wraps them up in his arms and he blesses them and he prays for them. That's what my God is like. Is God just? Is he a just judge? Is he a just God? Absolutely. Look to Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Satan tempts these people. Satan rebels against God. And immediately, what do we see? The first thing we know about Jesus is that Jesus is coming as the head crusher of Satan. So yes, he's just. Revelation chapter 6, the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus, has come. And who is able to stand? We know that he's a just judge and a just God because we look to Jesus. But what about that story of that lady? Remember that widow? Who had lost her husband. And not only had lost her husband. But her only son had died. And here's Jesus going into that town called Nain. 
And all of a sudden this lady, she's weeping and she's, she's carrying out her son in a coffin. He has died. And what does it say Jesus does? He is moved. This is the exact phrase. He is moved with compassion. And he moves toward her and he reaches out to her and raises her son from the dead. That's what our God is like. The compassionate one. The one who wept with Lazarus' sisters when he died. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. And yet he cries with them. This is who my God is. He's the powerful one. Who Remember, he's asleep on the sea right in the midst of the megastorm. There he is asleep and then he wakes up and he says, Peace, be still. And the megastorm stops. His disciples say, who can this be who commands the winds and the waters and they obey him? It's the power of Jesus. That's who our God is. He's faithful. Think about God's faithfulness that we see in Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus kept telling him? He said, listen, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to spit on me and mock me and kill me. And it's for your sins that I'm doing it. But after I'm crucified three days later, what's going to happen? I'm going to rise up out of that grave. And he told him that. And he told him that. And he told him that. Then he dies for sinners like me and you. And on the third day, he shows up in their living room. God is faithful to his word. That's what he's like. And so we look to Jesus and I praise God. We could go on and on and on about who Christ is. And therefore who God is. But don't you praise God that he's the one that we look to to see who God is. And so as you read Genesis through Malachi and all those gospels and all the book of Acts and all the Revelation, you read all of those, all of the scripture, you read it and you see Christ as you know that that is your God. Second description. He's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, number two, is the firstborn of all creation, which means that Jesus holds the title of sovereign owner of all creation. Jesus holds the title of sovereign owner of all creation. This word, firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This word, firstborn, is not mainly about the chronological order of birth, of who was born first. It's not mainly about that. That should be obvious to us because Jesus surely was not the first human born, right? And we also know that Jesus is not the first part of creation as if he is part of creation. I mean, the next verse, verse 16 says, for... All things were created through Him and by Him and for Him. So firstborn doesn't mainly mean in a chronological order when we think about that in the Bible. So this title, I want you to think about it like a title. He is the firstborn. Okay? This title, the firstborn, throughout the Scriptures is put forward as a position of prominence. The firstborn is a title that shows us a position of of prominence. So to be the firstborn was about being not necessarily the first one born, but about having supremacy in rank. Supremacy in rank. To be the firstborn was to be the owner, the inheritor, the ruler, the preeminent one was the firstborn. Let me let me just kind of glance to the Old Testament scriptures to show you that what I'm saying is true. Think about Jacob and Esau. Who was the firstborn? Well, the first one born was Esau, right? But when they were still in the womb, God says that Jacob will be the firstborn. The older shall serve the younger. Something backwards is happening here. And then you see Jacob take his birthright and Jacob is the firstborn. Although he's not the first one born. But what about at the end of Genesis? You got Manasseh and Ephraim. 
Manasseh, you can literally read a verse in Genesis that says, Manasseh the firstborn. You can go over to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, Ephraim the firstborn. Why? Because he is the first one born, no doubt. And that's the normal way that that title would be given. But not in this case. The firstborn was Ephraim. Or, I get another verse. Exodus 4.23. Exodus 4.23 says this. Israel, this is God speaking, Israel is my firstborn. Now what that obviously doesn't mean is Israel was the first nation because they were not. But what it does mean is they have supremacy and rank in God's kingdom. They were, they were his firstborn. Let me give you a verse. Psalm 89, 27. This is a good one. Listen. I will make him the firstborn. He's speaking about David and alluding to Christ. I'll make him the firstborn. What do you mean firstborn? Listen. The highest of the kings of the earth. This is about prominence and position. I'm going to make you the highest of the kings of the earth. And what do you call that? The firstborn. You're the firstborn. Outside of scripture, there were even ancient rabbis and their, their writings that they called Yahweh, the one true God, the firstborn of the world. And so obviously what they don't mean is Yahweh was born first. They mean he has this title of supreme ruler, owner of all, of all the world. So think about Jesus. Take your mind back to Jesus. Jesus, the one who bled. Jesus, the one who died. The one who had to take breath into his lungs, oxygen into his lungs. That Jesus right here is given the title of firstborn. And he's not just preeminent, supreme in a family. He's the firstborn of a family. He's not just the firstborn of a nation. But it says he is firstborn over all of creation. Over all created things. He is supreme in rank and honor and ruler of all. J.B. Lightfoot is a common uh, commentary I was reading. J.B. Lightfoot, he interprets firstborn of all creation like this. Absolute heir and Lord of the universe. Absolute heir and Lord of the universe. And that makes total sense in light of the next verse, verse 16. For by him all things were created. So the justification that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The justification for that statement is that all things were created through him. Verse 16, okay? So think about that. Before we get to verse 16, listen. I want you to think about this. The one who is being called the sovereign Lord of the universe, the owner and ruler as that place over all the universe, is a what? I want to keep driving your mind here. He's a man. The man Christ Jesus. I just want you to think about this. You imagine those disciples in Matthew 28, when they heard Jesus stand up and say, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's all the creation, all authority and all creation has been given unto me. You imagine that. They had seen Jesus. They had touched his body. They had felt his breath. They saw him eat and drink and digest food. They saw this. And this man just made the claim that all of creation is mine. I own it. And this will be a good time to bring in that famous quote, right? Because Abraham Kuyper's birthday was just yesterday. And he's in the famous preacher 1800s. And this is his famous quote. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. He owns it. He owns it all. And so what's the only proper response to the Lord 
of all creation is to bow down before Him. How do you respond to that? You bow down before Him in humble submission to Him, in genuine faith, in sincere repentance, and you fall down before Him as Lord of all. You bow down before Him. It's the only proper response. And if you don't do it in this life, you'll bow before Him in eternity just before He pushes you into eternal damnation. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. It's the only proper response. So I plead with all to bow before Him now. I got one more thing I want to mention about this. I debated on whether or not to mention it. Um, I want to I want to whet your appetite of something you can go back and look at it later. Okay, I just want to whet your appetite. What do you think about this? Uh, what about this question? Aren't you glad that Adam is not the firstborn of all creation? Aren't you glad Adam's not it? Throughout the New Testament, you got this comparison of Adam and Jesus. Just think with me here. Comparison of Adam to Jesus. Okay, First Corinthians fifteen. It calls, you know, Adam the first Adam and Jesus the last Adam. Okay? It calls, it calls uh, uh, Adam the first man and Jesus the second man. Okay? In Romans, it says that Adam is a type of Christ. In fact, it says that every person on the planet fits in one of these two categories. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. One or the other. So think about that. Adam and Christ compared in the scriptures. And humanly speaking, Adam would be the firstborn, right? The first human. Humanly speaking, he would be the first human there. Okay? But aren't you glad that Adam's not the firstborn over all creation? Aren't you glad? The one who rebelled against God. The one who fell in temptation in his own weakness falls to the temptation of Satan. The one that plunged all of creation into despair and eternal torment. Aren't you glad that Adam's not Lord of all? I want you to think about this. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, Adam's born. Adam, or Adam comes, is created. He comes into the world. And Adam's there. Here he is. And he falls to Satan's temptations and rebels against God. And immediately our Bible speaks about another one coming. The head crusher Jesus is coming. The second one. It's not the first man. It's the second man. This is what we see immediately. And so here's what I want you to notice. I just want to whet your appetite. Think about this. There's allusions all throughout the Old Testament that it's not the first one. It's not the one that seems like the firstborn chronologically. It is the second one. It's the next one that's coming. It's not Adam. It's the last Adam. And so here are the allusions, especially in Genesis. Think about the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. First one born, Cain. His offering, not accepted. Abel's, the second one born. Abel's offering is accepted. Fast forward in Genesis just a little bit. You got Abraham. Abraham has two sons. He has Ishmael who was born first. And he has Isaac. Which one is the firstborn? Sarah, Sarah says, Ishmael shall not be heir with Isaac. The Christ is coming through Isaac, not through the first one born. Isaac, so now you got Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And when Esau and Jacob are in the womb, God says something that seems so backward to those people. The older, the one that will be born first, the older shall serve the younger. And then Jacob takes his birthright. What's, you see something happening here? What's going on here? Why does the first child keep getting skipped over and the firstborn status keeps going to the next child? Then Jacob, the one I just mentioned about who was the true firstborn, Jacob has sons. And Reuben, his firstborn, was not, the Christ isn't coming through Reuben, he's coming through Judah. 
He's coming through the other son. And then Judah has sons. And you can read about this in Genesis 38. You just need to think, why did God give us this story? That, that Judah, there, his, his, his bride is about to have these children. Twins are in the womb. Twins are in the womb. And, and when it seems like the one that's about to come out first, they tie a little band around his wrist that he's the firstborn. But then the other one comes out instead. And so the one that seems like the firstborn does not come out in birth first. You see, that why is God telling us this? And then you get to the end of Genesis and, and, and Joseph's sons, uh, Manasseh, who was the firstborn, and Ephraim. And he brings his sons to his father and he wants his sons to bless, he wants Jacob, his father, to bless his sons. And so, of course, what does he do? He takes the firstborn Manasseh and he puts him at Jacob's right hand. That's where the firstborn goes. And he takes Ephraim and he puts him on his left hand. And Jacob does something really weird. He's blind and he goes, and he crosses his arms. And, jo and Joseph goes, no, 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 he's, he's not pleased with that. And he tries to remove his dad's hand. He says, no, no, you're wrong. This is the firstborn over here. And Jacob says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. What is the picture that's being displayed to us? God is sovereign over birth, over the firstborn status, over the scriptures in this. And he's telling us that it's not Adam, it's Christ who is to come. He's the true firstborn. And we see this. Go, go to Luke chapter 3 very quickly. Luke 3. I said, I said I want to share this with you, but I don't care what I said. <laughs> Luke chapter 3. Look, look at this. This blows me away, the sovereignty of God over birth and all these things. Look at Luke chapter 3. If you look at verse 21 through 22, what you see is Jesus is baptized and what does God say about him? You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son. And then at the end of that chapter, somebody else is going to be called a son of God. At the end of this chapter. So you got Jesus is baptized and he says, you are my beloved son. And then immediately you go into this genealogy of Jesus' father was, whose father was, whose father was. All the way back down the lineage till you get to Adam. And what does it say about Adam? Adam, the son of God. So in a sense, you got two sons of God here. Since you are my beloved son, and then it goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. You think about when it goes into chapter 4. And in chapter 4 of Luke, we get Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And here's what you're supposed to be thinking about. That first son of God, that first Adam, he fell to the temptation of Satan. He lost. In fact, he fell. It says the tree was, was uh, good to the sight. It was, it, was, it was good to eat. And it was desirable to make one wise. What do we call that? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And then here comes Jesus, and he enters into the same temptation. And three temptations are given to him. A temptation of the lust of the eyes, and he defeats it. A temptation of the lust of the flesh, and he defeats it. A temptation of the pride of life, and he defeats it. And Jesus reigns supreme. He is the one that not only defeats the temptations of Satan, but is going to crush Satan's head as supreme over all the universe. And the whole Bible is full of this, that Jesus is the firstborn. <clears throat> Let's go to the next one. Jesus our creator. Verse 16. So back to Colossians. Let what I just said whet, whet your appetite. You go back and check that out. Verse 16. We're going to see here. So we know he's the image of the invisible God. We know he's the firstborn of all creation. Now we're going to see him as creator Jesus. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. 
In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Man, I love this verse. You just got those three words there. By, through, and for. By Him all things were created. At the end, for all things were created through Him and for Him. Everything, everything created by, through, and for Jesus who bled, on, bled and died on the cross for your sins, risen from the grave. The, man, the one who is truly man and truly God. He's the creator of the universe. By, through, and for Jesus, everything is created. I want you to notice this. The general phrase, it says, by Him all things, that's the general phrase, all things, by Him all things, excuse me, by Him all things were created. That general phrase sometimes does not do the job of awakening us to the realities of Creator Jesus. You understand what I mean by that? Same thing happens when you hear, uh, and this is biblical, all have sinned. See, sometimes that's too general to really help you feel the weight of sin. See, you didn't necessarily come to Christ because you felt like, uh, I've sinned like everybody else. That's not necessarily how you came. You came to Christ because you felt convicted over your specific sin. Sometimes you don't need to hear, hey, all of sin, brother. You need to hear, you are a murderer before God. You're an adulterer before God. You have lied to His face. You've not loved Him like He deserves to be loved. And so in that same sense... Sometimes the general phrase, all things, is not enough to awaken us to the realities of Creator Jesus. So, specifics are given. Whether things in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things. He's giving you some specifics. So let's think about some of these specifics. In heaven and on earth. And I want us to be awakened to the reality of King Jesus, the Creator Jesus. Awaken to the reality. In heaven and on earth, everything in heaven and on earth, think about it, created by, through, and for Jesus. This means Jesus is the Genesis 1 Jesus, not the History Channel Jesus. He's the Genesis 1 Jesus. He's the one that spoke into existence solar systems and animal life and plant life and sea life. He speaks it into existence. He is creator Jesus. He, he's Psalm 104, Jesus. Let me read something to you from Psalm 104. Think about Christ as I read some of these verses from Psalm 104. Listen, you, and I'm thinking about Christ, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, cover your, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You, you cause, you Jesus, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. He's the Psalm 104 Jesus, not the History Channel Jesus. When we complain, when we complain about Jesus' creation, He has all the right. To kneel down to us and get on our level and look us in the eyes and say something like this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. Creator Jesus. So in heaven and on earth, he created all things. 
visible and invisible. Think about it. More specifics here. Visible and invisible. Everything you can observe with a human eye created by God. Cockroaches to the cosmos is what I heard somebody say. Created by God. Created by Christ Jesus, your Savior, who laid down His life for you. And everything that you cannot observe with a human eye, created by Christ. All things invisible, created by Christ. And then more specifics, thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. Let me say this quickly. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Created by, through, and for Jesus. Now this is thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. This is, this is referring to the multitudes of various ranks of supernatural angelic beings. Even the evil ones that we call demons and unclean spirits. All of them created by, through, and for Jesus. Now if you want a proof text on that, you can go to Colossians 2.15. You could go to Ephesians 6.12. It should be there on your study guide. And you'll see that this is talking about the supernatural angelic beings. The whole realm of multitudes upon multitudes of angelic beings created by Creator Jesus. Now this would have been great for the Colossian church to hear at this time. And hear it for many reasons. But here's one reason. Because we know when we get into chapter 2 that these people are being tempted to fear that realm. To fear the angelic or even the demonic realm. They're being tempted to fear. In fact, they're, they're being tempted to bow down and worship angels, it says in Colossians chapter 2. And so he tells them right here, listen to me. Every single one of those angels, of all the billions that exist, he says, he says all of them are not only by me and not only through me, but they are for me. Even the evil ones. Even the evil ones. The entire angelic realm created by, through, and for Jesus. So, think about this. So Jesus is. Who is Jesus. He's God manifested. The man Christ Jesus is God manifested. He is Lord sovereign of the universe. And he is creator God. He's creator God. And let me just kind of close by looking at that last little phrase. That last phrase says for him. All things are created. How? For him. Now, by him and through him means that Jesus is the starting point of the universe. But for Him means He is the goal of the universe. He's the aim of the universe. He's not only the starting point of the universe, but He's the goal of it. Everything is created for Him. All things exist for Him. Nothing in existence exists for itself. It all has a purpose. It all was made with a purpose. And that purpose is for Christ. Here's what it doesn't mean. For Christ does not mean as in it's created for Christ because He needed it. It's not a gift to Him that He needs. He doesn't need anything. He is the totally self-sufficient Savior. Acts 17, 25. It says He's not served with human hands as though He needed anything. He doesn't need a thing. So what does it mean when it says for Him? Not as if He needed it, but for Him as in for His ex exaltation. For His praise. For His glory. All things created to put on display the glory of King Jesus whom we serve. Let me give you a couple cross references. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. I love this verse. For it was fitting that he for whom 
Listen to that. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I just said the one who's called the founder of our salvation, the one who suffered, it says here, through suffering, the one who suffered and died, is the one that all things exist by him, but not only by him, but for him. Romans 11.36 is the same thing. It says, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so that means that all of creation, every single thing from angels and demons to galaxies to oceans and mountains to me and to you, exists for the glory of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. We're back where we started, right? It's the reason all things exist. And so that means every person in this room, so everybody here, Every person listening, you exist for the glory of God. It's the reason we're breathing right now. It's for the exaltation of Christ Jesus. Now here's the thing. If you reject Jesus, if you reject Him while you're upon this earth, and, you, and, and either you just right out reject Him, or you reject Him through nominal Christianity, false Christianity, saying that you're a Christian, but it's obvious from your life that you're not. How do you reject Him? If you reject Christ Jesus, He will still get glory in your life. And what He's going to put on display in your life is His glorious justice. And for all of eternity, angels will bow down and people will worship God for His perfect justice showed and put on display as He poured out wrath on you in hell. He will still be glorified. God is known by the judgment that He executes. But if you don't reject Christ, and you come to Christ. And you, you come to Him. You abide in Him. You come, you come to Him in repentance of faith. And you abide in Him. You are a testimony. You put on display His glorious, what? His glorious grace. His glorious mercy. You, put, you are a testimony of the grace of God when you come to Christ like that. It's, imagine for all of eternity, angels looking in with amazement as a bunch of people sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and dominion. For, for He has redeemed us by His blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. you imagine the angels looking in going, Man, God is gracious. These people are His and walking in eternal joy for all, for all of eternity, walking in joy. And you imagine the angels looking in going, Man, God is gracious. Man, God is gracious. And so here's my final exhortation to you. Brothers and sisters that are in Christ, Church of Jesus, Grace Community Church, I want to encourage you, in light of all these things, let your affections be full for Jesus. This is what we keep talking about, right? When we say happy in Jesus, we're not talking about some happy, clappy thing, superficial. We're talking about go after affections filled up. My cup overflows with affections for Jesus Christ and let all that you do and all that you say be for His exaltation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And God, this, these verses remind me, Lord, that we are called to be true worshipers, Lord. True worshipers. God, help us. God, deal with our, with our fleshly, human ignorance that's only available in this world, in this life, but not in eternity. Deal with our ignorance, God, that keeps us from worshiping You. Deal with our distractions that keeps us from worshiping You, God. 
God, deal, deal with our sin. It keeps us from worshiping you. And God, I pray that you fill, our, fill us up, God. Cups overflowing with affections for you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would exalt yourself to us, Lord. Not only now and this time, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. That you would exalt yourself, Lord Jesus, in your church, through your word, by your Holy Spirit. Do it, Lord. Do it so that we would be a people that worship you day in and day out, God. And even now in this song that we're about to sing, God, be exalted in this song. Let us praise you from our hearts. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.